All right, this morning is August 27th, 2006. Our message this morning is transitional leadership. Transitional leadership. When I say transition, what do you think of? Yeah, change. One of the unfortunate side effects of using the word transitional, though, is people tend to think you transition from one thing to another. In other words, you were at point A, now you're at point B, and nothing is at point A anymore. That's not the only way you transition. You can transition some of yourself. You can transition some of your belongings. You can transition by changing the state of your mind. <laughs> you know, the transition means many things. But as I'm using it this morning, I want to talk to you about the way the real church is supposed to operate. And I'm going to show you this in the Word. In the world system, we need credit for everything. You understand? I don't mean like a credit card. I mean credit in that if little Jeffrey back there accomplishes something, starts a business, he wants his name on it. If his child one day, that's a scary thought, huh, Jeffrey? If his child one day inherits that, the father will feel bad if the son doesn't tell everybody how he got his business, right? So the it's okay that we do things for each other in the world as long as everybody knows that we did it. Okay? We need credit for things. I met a pastor the other day and he wanted to be very clear. No, no, no. I'm not the senior pastor. Okay, I didn't ask, did I? You know? And why was that so important? He wanted to make sure that he was giving credit saying, now, now somebody put me in this position. There's somebody over me. And there's, there's others. I'm just one of many there. That kind of humility can be a wonderful thing. Or it can reduce the kingdom of God to an Amway-like concept where you have an upline, you have a downline, and you can't ever be freed from it. The kingdom of God works under a different principle. The leaders in the kingdom transition their abilities, their knowledge, their love, their anointing into people. And if they do it well the people surpass them without ever knowing necessarily how they surpassed them. I want to show you that in the Word. So turn with me to Acts 4. I want to talk to you about a transitional leader. Before I, I read Acts 4, though, let's just take a quick little survey. It'll be highly scientific, okay? I mean, Gallup will probably call me right after hearing about this and want to know how we, we accomplished this. Other than Jesus, who is the most recognizable figure in the New Testament. Paul. Wow, isn't that amazing? Wasn't that highly scientific? Double blind, closed ballot. No chads, right? Everybody said Paul right away. Now, in parts of Louisiana, that is said Peter, okay? But most everybody who is intimately acquainted with the Word says Paul right away. You'd say Paul's kind of the big cheese, wouldn't you? I mean, Paul. You speak his name almost with reverence, don't you? Let's start with me in Acts 4. Forgive me for asking rhetorical questions I don't really expect answers to. I want you to think about that for a second, how great Paul is, right? In Acts 4, starting in verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and mind. Well, that's a statement. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. That right there, if you never heard about a miracle, <laughs> if you never heard that somebody was raised from the dead or a shadow healed somebody, that right there is a miraculous statement, isn't it? I mean, 
Go share a place in line with somebody at Luby's after the service. See how well it works. What a supernatural thing. They felt like they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, Joseph, that's a good Hebrew name, right? Mm-hmm. Joseph, a Levite. There's a nice Hebrew appointment, isn't it? What is he as a Levite? He's a priest. He's entitled to receive from everybody else, isn't he? Because he's a priest. Levites are entitled to that. From Cyprus. Uh-oh, he's a diaspora Levite whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas had something. He had family possessions. Whether it was from marriage or from acquiring, whatever it was, he had possessions. He sold them for the benefit of other people. Now what's interesting is we call him Barnabas. Never again has he mentioned Joseph in the Bible because the man's name spoke about his function. They renamed him. They said, no, 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 you're not Joseph. That's a great name. What you are is the son of exhortation, of encouragement. Now, when I talk about encouragement, we tend to think that's Judah telling Cassidy, you know, your hair is really pretty, right? That is encouragement, isn't it? Biblical encouragement, though, this kind of encouragement that this is speaking of is an exhortation in the Word. It's a teaching in the kingdom that brings life to you. It's not just, oh, wow, you know, I love those earrings. That's, that's very nice. This, is, this word encouragement here conveys much, much more than that. And when it says he's the son of it, what it's speaking of is this characterizes your whole life. You're a chip off the old block, and the old block is encouragement. It's like your daddy was an encourager. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that good? Well, what an important role. Because in this transitional leadership, keep your finger in Acts 4. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 3. I want to read you a principle. There's something that happens. There's something that is my job in the kingdom. It's not to call this first life-changing ministries. And when Jeffrey grows up and moves on on all the power and authority that God's given him, demand that if he starts a church, we call it second life-changing ministries. Now, why might I do that? Because I want credit. I mean, after all, this young man got all this knowledge from me, right? This young man got his vision from me, didn't he? Or did he? Well, I had some influence in his life. I I want that clear. Come on, y'all can't hear that in anybody's voice you know? You hear it in everybody's voice you know, mine included. Everything's okay as long as we each get acknowledged. Huh? Watch this. In Deuteronomy 3, starting in verse 26. From the desert of Kadesh, I'm sorry, Kadamoth, I'm in the wrong chapter. Yep. Sorry about that. This fan thing keeps changing my pages. Okay, 26. But because of you... The Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. 
Do not speak to me any more about this matter. This is Moses speaking about going into the promised land. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. Back to Acts 4. There's this principle in the Bible. And it's that men who God put in leadership positions would strengthen and encourage other people for one purpose. To be commissioned in the Lord to accomplish what they were called to accomplish. Now with Moses and Joshua, it's very easy to see how this happened. There are lots of passages, and I may or may not read them to you, Joshua hanging out in the tent of the Lord long after Moses had left. About Joshua at Moses' side continually. You see that he spent time with Moses over and over and over. But when I ask you, who is the most famous man in the New Testament saving Jesus himself? And you answer Paul. Did Paul have a traveling companion? Who? Barnabas. I wonder if you've ever really looked at the relationship closely. Because their relationship teaches us how this is supposed to work in the kingdom. When I speak about these two men, I tend to say Paul and Barnabas. feels almost awkward to say Barnabas and Paul, doesn't it? Why? Why is that? Because we see Paul as the chief and Barnabas as the sidekick, right? It's like saying Joshua and Moses versus Moses and Joshua. We see one is preeminent and the other is subservient, don't we? Or do we not? Yeah, y'all, y'all are with me, right? Did you know that that's not how they're introduced in the New Testament, though? The words Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, appear far more frequently than Paul and Barnabas. Let's, let's look at that. Oh, said, Well, what difference does it make? Who gets top billing? It doesn't. I want to illustrate something about the kind of leadership that we see in the Bible and what it's supposed to accomplish. I want to tell you part of my vision, what it is that I hope to do here. I hope to be able to teach you to encourage you, to strengthen you, so that you will outlast me, outrun me, and accomplish more in the kingdom. And if I do it well, it will be without you having to give credit to where it all came from for anybody other than Jesus. Because I got it from somewhere, didn't I? How many copyrights would we have to have on this stuff if we passed it down through every teacher that ever taught? Paul said, what is Paul? What is Apollos? They're just servants through whom you came to believe. That's a lot different than a papal hierarchy. Isn't it? Okay. Well, turn with me to Acts 9. What happened in Acts 9? David, you were reading Acts 9 this morning. What happened in it? What major event happened in Acts 9? Saul got converted, right? Pretty awesome thing. Saul got converted. Now, we know... Now, from watching Paul's life, from reading his epistles, this is one of the most powerful events that the world has ever known. It turns the world on its end. I mean, this guy takes the gospel all the way to Caesar. I mean, how awesome, right? But did he get there alone? Who prepared him? Who helped him? Who taught Paul? When all these teachings about coverings came out, that was a real common thing. Who's your covering? We used to respond, who was Paul's covering? And the implication was there was none. There's just Jesus. Does that mean that Paul was some kind of boy prodigy? The moment he was born again, even though he says, don't put a novice in authority, he was put in authority? 
How did Paul get where he was? And why don't we know the story? Is it because somebody selflessly served behind the scenes without needing credit? Maybe somebody who was born to encourage and strengthen, who was a teacher and a prophet himself? Hmm, let's see. In Acts 9... Starting in verse 23, we got Paul, who is still being called Saul. He's in the city of Damascus and he's preaching powerfully. I know what it's like to be born again, have some knowledge, excited, you can't shut up. You tell everybody, in fact, the first Bible studies I ever did are bigger than these. You know? That didn't mean I knew anything. It just meant I had zeal. People are drawn to that. People are drawn to an anointing on your life. But it's required that you be prepared. Nobody's an exception to that. It is required that you be prepared. You know why? Your lives are important to the Lord. What happens to those three little guys back there is important to the Lord. How many people do you know that are broken and crippled because of something that happened to them in God's name? Hell yeah. It might be better to say, who do you know that is not have some great big scar because of something that was done in God's name? My family that's watching from Baton Rouge has had powerful experiences with Jesus. Powerful experiences in the baptism and the Holy Ghost. But you know, there was a big delay in the, pro- in the process. We spent years without that power in our house. You know why? Because some man of God mishandled them, hurt them, embarrassed them in front of a bunch of people. Isn't that interesting? It's important to God what kind of leadership He raises up. Barnabas is a great example. So Paul's preaching, Saul's preaching in Damascus. Verse 23. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Hear hear him as Saul. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Does having followers make you a leader? It means you have potential. doesn't mean you're ready. I had followers the moment I was born again. I had no problem drawing the crowd. I went out and preached everywhere that I could go. It became soon, it soon became to the forefront of my mind that I needed to be prepared. How good is it when you come to that decision and it doesn't have to be forced upon you? When it's forced upon you, it feels ugly. It feels like somebody's saying you're not very good, right? But when you come to the conclusion, it's a high honor. Wow, I'm being prepared. I'm being prepared because I'm important. Because God's got a plan for my life. That's what this church is for. You're here because God wants you to be prepared. You're here because He has a plan for your life. A destiny, if you will. A mark that you're supposed to hit. And if anybody could hit it, you wouldn't need to be prepared. You'd have been born again the moment you were birthed in the natural, and your life would be done and over. But your lifetime has been building to this point. Your entire events of your life have been building to one sum total to get you to the place where God wants you so that He can accomplish His work through you and gain glory and honor for your name. Do you have a sense that you're on track? Well, I can look at some of you. Can you look at Nick and Lindy and see that they're on track? Can't you? You know, I wish I had Polaroid pictures of the first day I met each of you and could set them beside today. Well, Craig, Charlotte, would that be a different Polaroid picture? Now... Why do I point that out? That's because we are making progress. And here's how it comes. They lower him opening in the wall. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Can you imagine? You tried to join this group? But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. 
<laughs> you know, Steve, I can appreciate you'd like to come to Life Changing Ministries, but Nick and I are pretty afraid of you. We'd like you to go somewhere else. The only time I've ever seen that happen is with a church that doesn't move in the gifts and they find out you do. <laughs> hey, it's wonderful, your thing, uh, but uh, you're not going to fit in here. Come on now, y'all have never heard that? Never seen that? I love the word but in the Bible. B-U-T. Only one T, Matthew. Don't laugh at me. I love it. You know why? Because if, if it were not for that little three-letter English word, lots of stories would have turned out really badly. What if Saul had shown up and said, Hey, apostles, I'm here! I'm sorry about the whole killing thing. I'm hoping you'll overlook it. Now I want to be trained. I want to be prepared. And they said, Mm-mm, we're scared. No, thank you, pass. Right? We wouldn't have lots of the letters that we have, would we? But how about this next verse? It says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul was on his journey and had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Somebody had to vouch for this young man, right? Now what's interesting is these guys are probably about the same age. Find out God could care less about your age most of the time. They're about the same age, but one needed somebody to vouch for him. Why? Because he was new. And his life prior had not been very good. Come on now. One of the great things about moving from one place to another is you get a new start. Not everything that you ever did in your life. I mean, some of you messed up in the seventh grade. And you have peers that that is all they remember about you when they see you. <laughs> you remember when Nick was in the seventh grade and the milk came out of his nose? You know? I mean, that's all they remember. And so they don't find, you don't find acceptance among them. Nobody ever experienced that? Y'all were all the popular kids, huh? He needed somebody to vouch for him. He needed somebody to stand with him. He was new in this. And he had great potential. He's already trying. He's already showing faith. Why? How do you know that? He's preaching even on the threat of his life. I mean, right after Barnabas finds him, the Grecian Jews are trying to kill him. He's already showing potential, but it needs to be formed. His knowledge was great, vast, expansive. Probably knew more the day he got saved than Peter had learned in all of his life. But he wasn't ready. You know why he wasn't ready? He had to be discipled. He had to be mentored. He had to be shaped. Now, we don't think about our leaders as having to be taught, huh? You don't think about prophets as having to grow up from children. You don't think about great men of God as having to be discipled by somebody. It's as if they dropped out of the sky and they were always what they are today. Nobody has always been what they are today. All of us have to learn and grow. I'm listening to some old preaching tapes because I thought it was funny. You know why it's funny to me? What I thought was awesome. What I thought was just a powerful word from God in 1994 preaching. Now sounds almost silly and laughable and I'm a little embarrassed. You know, we're a work in progress. And thank God for the men that have been sent in our lives that quietly work behind the scenes to transition what they have learned into us. Doesn't mean we build them a shrine. Moses did awesome things for Israel, right? Didn't he? 
I mean, there's no question Moses has a position of preeminence in Israel. So much so that God did something. He hid his body. You know why he hid his body? Because the Israelites might have worshipped him. I wish we could hide some of the Christian leaders' bodies throughout history. You know why? They're held up as demagogues. That's something that a man of God's never supposed to be. We have to find ways to fade quietly into the background as we prepare people for service. The best thing that you'll ever see is a ministry that nobody knows on a worldwide level but raises up people that impact the world. You know why? That's what Jesus would do. That's exactly what he would do. That's why he takes a kid out of a field and makes him a king. That's Jesus. Watch this. So, what we have is somebody needs to vouch for. Somebody needs to stand with this young soul. You remember John 8 teaches about Jesus? He says, man, I'm not alone. When I pass judgment, John 8:16 says, there's somebody that stands with me. Have you never been in a place in life where you knew what was right, but you just needed somebody to stand with you? I was at one not long ago in pain care. And God raised up a young single woman full of power, spit and vinegar, who would stand with me in a difficult situation. I want to tell the truth. I'd have stood by myself. But it's so much nicer to have somebody stand with you. Have you never seen injustice? Been in a room full of people? And you say, hey, hey, that's wrong! Thinking, surely everybody else will join you? And they went, they're all secretly happy you did it, but watch what happens to him. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Paul needed somebody to stand with him, and Barnabas did. Keep your finger here. I want to read you something out of Colossians real quick. Now, I realize this sounds a little redundant, but who was it that first stood with Paul? Barnabas. Now, watch in Colossians. You might even say that Barnabas vouched for Paul, wouldn't you? Isn't that a good English word? He vouched for him. What did he do? He stood up and said, hey, man, I know this guy. I know what happened to him. He's cool. You can trust him, right? Transitional leadership. Watch this in Colossians 4, starting in verse 10. Still have to find it. Sorry. Four. Ten. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you greetings. Paul speaking here. As does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, I had to change my name to, also sends you greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling for you in prayer, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. goes on to talk about some other people. Where do you think Paul learned to do that? I mean, of all the things you could write in a letter, why is Paul writing about Epaphras saying, guys, I can vouch for him. His character's good. He's somebody you can trust. When you don't see him, it's because he's working hard for you. Where do you think Paul learned to do that? 
You think it's possible that while he's writing this letter, he remembers a time when he's standing nervously in front of some other people and somebody stood up and vouched for him? So why did he write, I vouch for you the way Barnabas vouched for me? Is it because it's not necessary? Is it because Jesus gets the glory for everything that we do? Barnabas transitioned that quality to Paul without ever taking credit for it because it was really Jesus who did the work in Paul. Barnabas was just a servant who got to help along the way. If we do our job right, David will be able to do everything that God has called David to do. All of you will have a role in helping to equip him to do that without feeling a need to get the credit for it. See, when we get credit for things, when we build our little curricula vitae, if you will, all that's doing is saying, I'm becoming more so that Jesus can become less. When we refuse to take credit for things, when we smile, shrug it off, without inwardly desiring it, going, no, 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 stop saying that. You know, stop saying that. When we refuse to act like that, what happens is all people can do is credit the work that they see Jesus has done in someone's life. I ask you who's the greatest man in the New Testament other than Jesus without hesitation. Everyone says, Paul. But how did he get that way? Somebody had to help him. Turn with me to Acts 11. Transitional leadership means that something can be poured into you so that you possess its abilities, its qualities, its attributes without having to constantly go back to that original source. Can you imagine how ridiculous this would get if everybody got credit for everything they did from the beginning of the world till now? Nick preached powerfully as he had heard Eric preach, who had heard Buzz preach, who had heard Larry Stockstill preach, who had heard, I mean, my God, we'd never get a statement out of our mouths, would we? What's important is that we don't need men's approval, that what we need is to get it right in the kingdom. This ministry is about finding ways to pour into you, and we don't need credit for it. We don't need you to go start a church that's named after us. We don't need you to constantly reference us. What we need you to do is do exactly what Jesus has called you to do. And that day will come for lots of people. I believe we're going to birth all kinds of ministries and I'm excited about it. Just don't want to have a premature birth. Don't want to have one that ends in a stillbirth. Want them to make it. And God's a big God. I was a miracle baby. I was born early too. So, in Acts 11... Something happens. Let's start in verse uh, 25. Are you with me in verse 25? We're going to start earlier than that. I just wanted to check and make sure you were there. Verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. This is news that there's revival going on in Antioch. Okay? News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's grace, he was glad and encouraged them all. Why do you think he did that? Do you think he had a mandate from Jerusalem? You have to encourage these people? Or do you think they sent him because that's who he was? This is another important principle in leadership. We are never going to look at you and go, Oh, wow, Jeffrey back there is pastor. And then hope to see pastor-like qualities in Jeffrey. What we will always do is wait to see what you are in the kingdom and then 
recognize it as a title if necessary. You know, do you think Barnabas had on his business card, son of encouragement? (laughs) Pastor, prophet, teacher, evangelist? Probably not, huh? It's just who he was. He didn't do this to earn recognition for himself. He didn't do this with the motive, everybody will know me as an encourager and I'll go down in history as an encourager. Right? He didn't have the encourager on his license plate of his car. What he did was who he was. What he had been taught by somebody to be. What he had learned from God was his role in the kingdom. So when he gets there, he sees evidence of grace and he's glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This guy is full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. He's encouraging people. And what are they doing? Coming to the Lord. Would you say that he's a capable preacher then? The Bible's going to go on to call him not just a a preacher, but a teacher. Not just a teacher, but also a prophet. Not just a prophet, but also an apostle. What I'm getting at is Barnabas was a capable man in his own right. And yet, he probably wouldn't be listed in the top five if you ask people to name the first five people in the New Testament other than Jesus that you can think of. Why? Because he did his work well. That's why. Watch this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Who went and got Paul? Barnabas. What made him think of him? Because when he met this young man, he was the first one to see potential in him. While everybody else was scared to touch this firebrand, he said, no, 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 no. I will vouch for him. His experience is real. He just needs somebody to mold him. I know he's done horrible things. I know he's kind of a foul up. But you know what? With a little bit of work, he can be great. Let me spend some time with him. This is transitional leadership. It doesn't require you to be perfect today. It requires that somebody sees potential in you to be what God's called you to be. That's what our ministry is formed around. When we say we want to see one life changed at a time, what that means is we will take the time to go against the grain of the crowd to invest in you. And the reason we will invest in you is because we see potential for you to become what God's called you to be. And we don't require that you carry our ordination, although you might get that. We don't require that you carry our church name, teach our literature, or send finances to us. Because that's not what the kingdom's about. The kingdom is about this transitional leadership. Barnabas is of, of the world looking for young Pauls to invest in. Friends, all of you in your life need a Barnabas-type figure. I need that. All of us do. You're going to see a neat thing about just how versatile, <laughs> versatile Barnabas is, though. Well, we're talking about this idea of seeing worth in someone. What is the Bible that Barnabas would have read from? The Old Testament. Except then it wasn't called the Old Testament, it was the Torah. Yeah, it was the only Testament. They didn't call the new one the new one either, by the way. It was all Scripture to them. Peter didn't say, you know, Paul's New Testament writings 
are the same as the Old Testament writings. He simply referred to it all as Scripture. One unbroken unit. This Exodus 18 Barnabas would have been familiar with. Exodus 18, around the 21st verse, tells Moses, go out and choose capable men. Get these capable men. Lay your hands on them. Pray for them. And God's ability to make judgment will be in them. Barnabas knew that Paul was capable if the Spirit of God was residing in him. What he needed was somebody else to stand with him, see worth in him, and vouch for him. So soon as he saw a need in Antioch, I want to be honest, if this had been an American preacher, what Barnabas would have done was gone and discovered Antioch, put his great big church flag right there, put the word first on it, declared to everybody that I'm the first one to win a convert in this area, I'm the first one to come teach here. Everybody else that came after me is second to me. That's what he would have done if he was an American. What did he do, though? He saw the need and ran right away to go get another man who he knew that if he invested in, he could help him. That's an awesome, godly thing. Friends, you need people in your life that you can pour into. You need to seek them out. It is a thing. When we say, how do you get seated? <laughs> You have to serve and love other people. By the way, how popular do you think that Paul was in the early days of his ministry? The Jews wanted to kill him, right? Because he's a turncoat. The disciples, how, how many of them do you think wanted him in, in their house? He might have put your mother in prison. He, he might have killed or at least given his approval to somebody that was killed that you loved. It might have taken a special man to see worth in him. A special man to realize he was worth investing in. But was he worth investing in? Wasn't he? He worked harder than everybody else. He took the gospel further, went without sleep more, was beaten more often, was shipwrecked more often, and he accomplished his goal. I like the ones that are the underdogs. I'm a bit of an underdog myself. Taking the road less traveled by my whole life. The easiest thing in the world for me to do would have been in a structured environment where all I had to do was make certain grades and meet the right people. And yet I'm convinced that I couldn't have accomplished for Jesus what I wanted to accomplish. I even found out in my life there are certain handicaps that God has allowed to be there. He might have even structured around me precisely so that I don't think more of myself than I should. You know, your age can be a handicap. Young men think they're inexperienced. Old men think that they're no longer relevant. And God can use both. He can use the young man to go conquer a kingdom in his inexperience, and everybody knows it wasn't his wisdom that did it. He can use the old man to go conquer a kingdom because everybody knows it wasn't his strength that accomplished it. God works through those weaknesses. The person that I learned the very most from in this gospel was the most unlikely package possible. You know? Five-six welder, you know, tattoos all over his body. I had a chance to go to the finest seminaries that the South had to offer, be paid to preach, and have a pretty little girl, quote-unquote, sing right beside me. And that's not what God chose for me. I wonder why. Could it be because I would have found it in Eric Stevens' ministry? You know? Could it be because I might not have made it long before I was just like every other person in that arena? God wants to transition things into you and He's willing to invest in you. 
What he needs you to do is not be so worried about taking credit for what you can and cannot do. Does that make sense to you? Good, good. Then y'all are getting it. We can stop right here, right? No, you know I won't give up this time. <laughs> okay, look at Acts twelve twenty-five. At least they're all right in the same area, right? I'm not wearing out your fingers today. How long did Barnabas and Paul stay at Antioch? An entire year, preaching and teaching together. By the way, did you hear how I said that? Barnabas and Paul? It appears that way every time so far it's mentioned in the Scripture. It's never Paul and Barnabas. It's Barnabas and Paul. Look at verse 25. Verse 23. No, verse 25 of chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, it's the first time he's called that, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. They're accomplishing their mission at Antioch, and now it's time to go somewhere else. And Barnabas wants to do something. He wants to take somebody with him. Why do you think Barnabas wanted to do that? Do you think that he wanted John Mark with him because John Mark was a powerful preacher in his own right who had it all together and they just needed help because Barnabas and, and young Saul couldn't get it together on their own? That's not in Barnabas's character. Who is he drawn to? The ones nobody else wants. So he grabs John Mark with him. He grabs a new trainee. The right kind of men of God who are transitional leaders are never looking to be surrounded with people of perfection. They are constantly looking for the one who needs the most help. You ever been jealous that somebody else gets more attention than you do? Maybe they needed it more. God gives people what they need, not what they deserve. And you know what John Mark needed? A little attention. You know who ought to be able to stand on his own two feet a little bit by this time? Paul. Paul. Psalm 128 speaks of a righteous man and the blessings that are in a righteous man's life. You know what one of the big blessings in a righteous man's life is? That there'll be tender little olive shoots springing up all around him. You know what that means? That means that a righteous man's fruit around him begins to resemble him. An olive tree raises up little tender shoots that look just like the bigger olive tree. They grow up in its root system, protected by its shade. Water rolling off of the branches right onto it. We ought to be reproducing ourselves in the lives of other people. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Adam then becomes like Eric? Well, he becomes like some of the anointing that is in Eric, and it's in his own unique personality. And Eric never needs credit for that. But that's something that we're supposed to be about. So John Mark goes along with him. And that's because it needs to happen. You know, Paul, speaking in Corinthians 11, says this very same thing. You know how he says it? He says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Where did he learn that? He learned it from following the man's example in the kingdom. Barnabas had transitioned that to him. Watch what happens all through this 13th chapter. 
In the church at Antioch, there were prophets, and I read you that. While they were worshiping, verse 2, the, the Lord in fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. No. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. What happens in the 13th chapter? Who did they meet? They meet a sorcerer called Elimus, right? This guy is an enemy of everything that is right. And what happens? For the first time, we see young Saul's real potential. I mean, prior to this, he had been a learned man. He had been a disciple, if you will, a sidekick of Barnabas, preaching and teaching effectively. But with this older man who had been vouching for him all of the time, with him, this next morning, there is an enemy of the faith that steps up. And God taps Saul on the shoulder and says, take care of him. And Saul pronounces judgment on this guy. He says, you're an enemy of everything that is right and you are blind. And he blinds him. This is the first time that you really begin to see in the Scripture Paul start to exert himself in any way. Prior to this, he's just Barnabas' sidekick. You know what's interesting? Far more than 14 years since he's been born again have transpired here. Think about that. You know what Paul was doing during those 14 years? According to his own word in the book of Galatians, getting revelation. We always think we're ready right away. And our teachers are always telling us, you're not ready, right? (laughs) There's a balance to this. Nobody who was ever ready to, to do what God called them to do, you can't be. But at the same time, you need to spend some time investing in it. You really, really do. It's worth it. If you hang out with the right people, they'll transition everything God has given them to you. And it can be done in a relatively short period of time when you consider that we're going to rule for an eternity. (laughs) So in the 13th chapter, what we really see is we see the emergence of Paul as a young leader. And when I say young, guys, I'm not talking about his age. He's actually a fairly old man at this time. During the 13th chapter, his encounter with Elimus, Paul begins to show all the potential that Barnabas had always seen in him. His work with Paul was soon coming to a close. The transition was occurring. Turn with me to Acts 14. In Acts 14, we're in the next city, which is Iconium. Look what these people say. I'm sorry, they go from Iconium to Lustra and Derby. Look at verse uh, 11 and listen to how the people describe for the very first time Barnabas and Saul, now called Paul. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, They shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. Because? What's that say? Because why? He was the chief speaker. See, Barnabas had went and vouched for young Paul from the beginning. Barnabas is the one that went and got Paul out of his learning in Tarsus and brought him to put him into ministry with him the very first time. The Holy Spirit set aside Barnabas and Saul to go on the first missionary journey. Saul learning from Barnabas as they go. And then at some point in this, the student is ready. At some point, the man that has been invested in so many years, the guy that the older man has been pouring in, begins to show what it is that he's been invested in for. Do you think Barnabas is mad about this? Do you think Barnabas goes, hey man, no student's ever greater than his master, you know? 
Don't you heal that next one. That's my job. Don't you preach on Sunday. That's my job. You think Barnabas punished him? Said, you preach too good this Sunday. You can't preach again for six months. Come on, y'all act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Do you think that doesn't go on in church? Do you think that doesn't go on in church? You haven't been in enough churches. You're spoiled. I promise it does. Do you think somebody praised Paul a little too much? Barnabas got mad? You ever been praying with people? Somebody gets healed, and one guy out of the group, it's really, you know, I don't know if y'all noticed, but it's around the time I put my hand on that person that they got healed. Okay, Junior. You know, go back to grade school. What you would like is to be the one that had the faith, but everybody else get the credit. Because you know why? They would be encouraged. We need to be the kind of Christians that invest in other people without reward for ourselves. That's what this ministry's goal is. And it's working. It's working. September 16th, you're going to get to hear another young man preach. Not because I think he's great. Not because I think he's mature or he's arrived, but because I see the potential of God in him. That's why. Because it's necessary in his training. You know, for long you're going to get to hear Nick preach. A lot of you are going to get to preach. Because our job, our goal, Matthew's calling is not just to lead worship. That's not why he's here. Why do you think he's adding people to the worship team? Why do you think he stays after services and on Wednesday nights and gives people guitars and things? We want to teach you to do this. Not so that you'll go, oh, I'm a graduate of the Matthew P. Rowe Worship School. Nobody would know what that was anyway. But because they, he knows that somebody invested in him and it's time to pay it forward. God, I wish I hadn't said that, but you know what I mean. The concept sounds, even if the movie's not. There's a transition that occurred. Numbers 27, verse 18 through 22, teaches Moses being spoken to, and God says, look, go lay your hands on Joshua. You commission him, strengthen him, and encourage him in front of all of the people. You know what you need? You need to be strengthened and encouraged to be who God's called you to be. You don't need to be just like me. You don't need to be just like Joel. You don't need to be just like anybody. You need to be who God's called you to be, but it just so happens in watching other leaders you can find yourself. You'll hear what I do that is good and that you can imitate. And you can follow my example to the extent that I follow Christ. You can follow Matthew's example to the extent that he follows Christ. That's not friends. That's transitional leadership. I don't want you to have the same kind of Bible I do, the same kind of bag I do, the same hairless head that I have. What I want is for you to learn about the freedom and power in the same way that I have and then pass me up. Isn't this what every father wants for a son? Come on, what kind of father does not want his son to surpass him in life? I mean, I know that's a popular theme in the movies, but truthfully, how many people have you known that really, if the father's a doctor, wants the son to be no better than dishwasher. That's not usually what we strive for, huh? We want people to surpass us in the kingdom. That's godly. Found out in the church and religious circles that's not the case, though. We say that and don't actually do that. I was counseling with a couple right there. We were praying for each other, washing each other's feet. You know how the hurt occurred in their lives? 
The church talked a good game. I want you to be a leader. I want you to... I, man, I'll lay down at your feet to push you up until it starts to happen. Then I'm going to climb up your back, trample on your head, hold you down, show everybody how low you are and how great I am. I couldn't relate to what they were saying at all. I've never seen it done. Never heard of it. I won't do that. With all of my heart, I won't do that. And if I do, then you can play this tape back and beat me over the head with it. That's why we put ourselves in this position. Now, some of you can sit out there and have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. You know, particularly if you're not called the fivefold minister, it's kind of like, you know, this is just a cloud to you. And I, that happens. I understand that. But those of you that feel a destiny within you and a mark that you have to hit, this ought to be ringing some truth in your heart. You know why? We only have so many years to accomplish this. We can't waste them. You only have so much time to get this done. We have to do it right. Not very many people will pour themselves into you with no recognition in return. There's usually a price. What we lack in size, what we lack in glamour, we will make up for in effort and sincerity. All right, I'm through commending myself to you. At this point, you either see it or you don't. But that's what we're about. In Acts 15, we see something new. Turn with me to Acts 15, starting in verse 36. By the way, we go from Acts 12. Barnabas and Paul are in Antioch. They're teaching effectively. Great numbers of converts are coming in. To Acts 13, where the Spirit sets apart Barnabas and Saul for the first missionary journey. They go out and do such a good job that Paul rises to a place where he's been peers with Barnabas this whole time, been a student, but now he's the chief speaker. Acts 15, Barnabas accompanies Paul right back to Jerusalem to tell everybody how good Saul just did. Isn't that great? He runs right back and says, man, y'all won't believe the things that happened. Man, the Gentiles are coming to the Lord in unbelievable numbers. You, y'all should watch Saul. You know, you big chickens afraid of him. Y'all should see what he's doing. That is a good feeling. I've had the opportunity to take some outcasts in my life and then go back to the very people that threw them out and smile and they say, well, how are they doing? And that, that attitude is kind of like this, you know. Ah, well, how are you doing with so-and-so? Like they're waiting for the dirt, Right? And you're looking right now and say, fantastic! Man, they're the biggest blessing in my life! And you see this kind of shock and surprise. And what you wonder, what's wrong with you that you couldn't get that out of them? Why didn't you see potential in them? You think maybe you were a little carnal regarding them? Why don't you repent? No, I don't do that. I want to do that. But I don't do that. I might. It's a good idea. Might do it next time. Y'all pray for me. There are times that I'm not speaking as the Lord would. <laughs> in Acts 15, starting in verse 36, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, somewhere in the 14th chapter, we start to see this transition. No longer is it Barnabas and Saul, but now it's Paul and Barnabas. Isn't that interesting? Who's writing this book? Luke is writing it. So what we have is we have an arbitrary third-party person who's writing as anointed by the Holy Spirit and without meaning to. It's not a conscious decision. He's not saying, look, I need to give Barnabas top billing until the 14th chapter. There were no 14th chapters. There were no chapters. But because of the way he saw events unfolding, the way the stories were related to him, it came natural to him to put Barnabas first. And the reason it became natural is because Barnabas was the leader. 
But somewhere around the 14th chapter, this change starts to occur because Barnabas is no longer a leader. Having accomplished his goal, he emancipates Saul. Now, this is something we leaders don't do good with. I'm not very good at emancipating. One of you comes and says, you know, I believe God's called me to Russia. God needs to have prepared me first because my flesh is not going to like that because I like you. I want you here. I love you. You know, it'll feel like a piece of me is leaving. If leaders do good all the way through everything else, this is the hardest part. And when they don't do good, God allows them to really not do good and sharp disputes arise. I've experienced that one too. I hope I do better when it's my turn. Watch this. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the Word of the Lord and see how they were doing. Why didn't he say where I preached? Because Barnabas was right there speaking and all the time. Okay? Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria, Sicily, and strengthening the churches. I can't speak today. Forgive me for that. Watch this, though. Watch this. What we've got is we've got two men of God. In their core... They have the same thing. They're full of the Spirit and wisdom, both called teachers, both called prophets. One raised the other in the Lord. If one had not vouched for the other, there would be no ministry today. But now we have two independent visions and two independent callings. God is not about an Amway program. He's not about building a denominational hierarchy. You know what He's about? People being motivated and moved by the Spirit. Why do you think Barnabas wanted John Mark? He had accomplished his goal with Saul. He had done everything in Saul that God had called him to do. He had helped him, walked alongside him, encouraged him, been through beatings and imprisonments. And now he could see, this guy's the chief speaker. He's handling it on his own. May never get credit for it, but I'm going to watch him walk the other way and be happy for it because it's awesome. Did Paul go on and do good? You think Barnabas will get some credit for that in front of Jesus since he didn't take it in front of men? Because you get the choice. Before men or in front of Jesus? Yeah. And what did Paul do? Paul said, no, my convictions are different. This kid's a quitter. And I'm going somewhere else and I'm going to do something else. He said, well, who was right and who was wrong? They were both right. John Mark would not have made it on the journey that Paul was going on. He couldn't have done it. He wasn't equipped for it. He wasn't a Roman citizen to start with. And Silas was. And that would be very important at their next stop. Well then, was Barnabas wrong? No, this is Barnabas' calling. To take people that are unlikely, but you see potential in and raise them up. He's an encourager. It's what he does. They're both right. You think God could use a sharp dispute? Unfortunately, in my life, that seems to be the way that He works. I'm trying to get better here from God so we don't have to fight about it. Well, John Mark was a quitter, right? Well, how did John Mark's life end up? Anybody know? He wrote the book of Mark. You think Barnabas did good with him? Why didn't John Mark write, though, in the first line of his letter? John Mark, raised by Barnabas. Everything I know, I know because of him. And 
Then writing his narrative about Jesus. Oh, and I know this, not because I was there, mind you, but because Barnabas told me. Because that's not how God works. He's not interested in building a man's great name. In fact, every time you see a man's great name spread out on a great building, you watch. That's almost an invitation for God to knock it over. How many times has He done it? And yet men are making the same mistake over and over and over. Do I need to put a sign out there that says, Life-Changing Ministries, Pastors Eric Stevens and Matthew Pirot. If you come to Life-Changing Ministries, do you have a hard time deciding who the pastors are? I mean, is it really that confusing if there are 8,000 people here that you need a sign in the front that says, oh, this one is the pastor? Or do you think that would be self-evident from the functioning of the people? So why do we find the need to do it? I'll tell you why. If the man of God doesn't need it, the people expect it. Well, get over it. Shame on me if I allow you to lift me up and shame on me if I lift myself up. Both are at fault. We're not going to do it. What we're going to do is transition everything God's given us into you silently because that's what God wants. Paul goes off in one direction. Who does he take with him? Silas. Silas is a Roman citizen. This is uniquely interesting because Paul has a vision. He ends up in Macedonia, jailed in a Roman prison, and he and Silas start singing. There's a jailbreak. The jailer gets saved. And the people have to come and apologize to Paul and Silas before everybody else. Do you know why? It's not because they're great men of God. It's because they were Roman citizens. Do you think God knew something ahead of time before it happened? I do. See, this sharp dispute that broke out that caused two men to go the other way caused the gospel to flourish in ways it couldn't if they'd stayed together. Our goal here is not to be a salt shaker that we all stay in. It is to encourage each other to rise to our level of maturity to where God has called us to be and then spread out. You know what happens though? We all start worrying, what about me? If 50% of you leave tomorrow because you're ready, my biggest temptation in my flesh, and I hate to put this on tape, will be, how will I pay my bills? Well, the same God that provided me the first time will have to provide for me again. You mean there's no coast in the kingdom? Yeah, there's no coast in the kingdom. You've been running uphill for 20 years and now it's time to coast? It won't happen. God will see to it that He tears down whatever it is that makes you think it's time to relax. You know why? He loves you. He loves you. This is by faith or trust from first to last. All the prophecies that I get, and I know you all y'all mean well and I appreciate it. They're good. They're prophecies. They're encouraging words. They all have the same theme. I see you overwhelmed and having to do nothing but trust in the Lord. I'm like, thanks. But that's right where God wants me. It's the only way He can use me. Where do you think He wants you? Hmm. Okay. So Silas, the Roman citizen, Acts 15.32 says that. You know what else Acts 15 says? Silas was a great encourager. Why do you think God added him to Paul? Is it just because he's a Roman citizen? Do you think Paul needed encouragement? This great man of faith was constantly getting beat up for his revelation. He needed somebody beside him that would encourage him. Who else did God add? Timothy, a young man that was willing to shed his blood just to get the gospel somewhere. I mean, he was circumcised late in life just so that he would be more acceptable to his audience. I'd call that love, wouldn't you? 1 Thessalonians 3.2 says that Timothy was a great encouragement and that Paul sent him 
to the Thessalonian church to be an encouragement to them. So what you really see is that what began in Barnabas grew to maturity in Paul, then found its way to Timothy. This is how the kingdom works. i got just a few more minutes, and I don't say that apologetically. I'm being broken of that. I'm telling you that we're about to close with this point, but this is what I want you to get from this message. You need in your life Barnabas. Not because he will be above you always. Not because he's a demagogue to you. Not because he's on some spiritual level that you'll never attain. But you need somebody who will pour into you so that you can grow to be more like Jesus. He's Jesus with skin on him to you. There'll come a time and place where what he'll be to you is an encouraging peer who runs alongside you because nobody is a master over you. Nobody is a lord over you. They're a fellow servant. But you also need in your life a Timothy, somebody to pour into. You are an unhealthy Christian if all you do is suck up. You have to pour out. God doesn't want you fat and bloated spiritually. What He wants is for you to receive so that you can bless. That's what He wants. Now, here's a beautiful thing. Each one of these men, whether we're talking about Timothy, Paul, Barnabas, or Silas, all played all three roles at some point in their life and probably were all three roles to different people. See, while I may be a figure that pours into Mandy's life, there comes a day when Mandy's pouring an equal amount into my life. And then maybe... She's pouring into somebody else's life as well. You know, Matthew Pero was the first Christian that kind of took me under his wing. The very first one. He was younger than I was. He was still in high school and I was married. But Matt had been a Christian longer. When I needed somebody to baptize me and I would not wait another second, I asked Matthew to do it. Matthew was like Barnabas to me. He is still like Barnabas to me. But our roles have changed. I'm not looking to Matthew for the very basics of the faith to explain them to me anymore. We became peers. And then at some point, I even became the chief speaker. Does that make Matthew lesser or greater? I'd say it makes him greater. This is how the kingdom works. It's how it's supposed to work. Now, something would be wrong. It would be accurate for the church today, but it would be wrong according to God if every time Matthew introduced himself to one of you, he said, Hi, I'm Matthew Piro. I'm the one that baptized Eric. Anything anything that he does, it's because of me. Wouldn't it? But don't act like you've never seen somebody do that. The way that it works is he poured himself into me silently. It worked with great effect. Then I began to pour into him. Now we work as a team. It can work the same way in your life. Don't you miss your opportunity. Don't miss it. This is important. Our lives are on the line. It's all at stake. That's all I've got to say about that. Transitional leadership. Y'all stand up and let's pray.